We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. What an inspirational thought from an inspirational leader. Today we have our special edition for Thanksgiving week as we speak with Dr. Alfred Sadler about the book that he and his twin brother Blair Sadler wrote titled Pluck. This is a special privilege as Dr. Sadler is one of the founding fathers of the PA profession and this outstanding book provides insights into some of the biggest shifts in society as it relates to organ donation, medical ethics, emergency medical services, and the health workforce. We learn about the twin brothers and their unending pluck that occurs in their lives as they navigate some of our nation's most prestigious institutions to change the world one project at a time. You can learn more about the book at their website, www.pluckthebook.com, or by purchasing a copy at your favorite bookseller. As always, you can also learn more about our honored guest on our website at www.papathpodcast.com. We hope you enjoy our Thanksgiving treat. Well, Fred, thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of our podcast. I'm very thankful and excited that you were willing to come on and talk about your new book that you and your brother Blair wrote together. Uh, I just got done reading the copy myself this uh, last night, and I just had no idea. I've known you for a long time, and I had no idea the impact that you and your brother have had on my life in just little snippets along the way, but on society as a whole and, and our country as a whole. And just congratulations on uh, such an incredible impact that you've had. Let's start by talking about the, the name of the book. Let's start about the process of naming the book. You and your brother sat down and decided to write this great history. How did you come up with the name Pluck? So to get to the answer to that, uh, this book goes back to 1967 to 76, when we were, for that nine-year period, working as a medical legal team, Blair being the lawyer, me being the much older, four-minute-older physician brother. And for years, when we'd have discussions with people, and then you get, if you have more time, people say, well, what did you do before that? Well, what did you do? Uh, Oh, you did that too? And then a number of people would say to me, hey, you know, you ought to write a book. And they've been saying that for 25 years when I've been a primary care doctor, you know, Uh, and said, oh, it'd be like, 
you being a uh, recording artist for uh, your father or something, you know, in radio. So the title uh, eluded us, and we decided finally to write a, write the book. And it started about four years ago. We're 81 now each. So the egg is... 163 because we're 81 and a half and um it's uh something that we spent about four years on and two different publishers and a number of consultant types to read through it and help us and then we uh, were looking for a title all the time and we came up with these things that we thought were sort of talked about what the book was about which was the power of we and that is actually in Don Berwick's uh, intro he talks about how we use we instead of I and a lot of what we accomplished was because it was that but the power of we, there have been a million things that's going to, you know, how many people are going to run to the shelf or the power of collaboration. Uh, my wife and I, who's a nurse practitioner, we came up with one plus one equals infinity. Well, Blair didn't like that. And I might just say that it's interesting when you write a book with your twin brother is you don't agree 100% of the time on everything. So we were talking with this great editor in New York and we couldn't come up with a title. And this is near the end. The book's basically all written. We're just trying to come up with the title. And... <laughs> So we came, we started working on the subtitle, Lessons We Learned for Improving Healthcare in the World. And as we, and then we just about had that. And as I, it was the funniest thing that came over me as we're doing the Zoom, he's in New York, Blair's down in San Diego, I'm up here in Carmel. I found myself, and with a little bit of luck, with a little bit of luck, I just found myself saying, singing that out loud and that we could do all these things, you know, improve healthcare and stuff. And he immediately, the editor immediately jumped, it's not with luck, it's pluck. And we really didn't know what pluck meant in this sense. And he said, pluck, it's the perfect word because it means that you'll take action or you have gumption or the Yiddish, it's chutzpah, you know, and that you can have all the, and Congressman Lewis, who we quote, because we quote a lot of people, as you know, having read the book and that have made these marvelous comments that uh, in, we think enrich our lives and enrich the book um, as a result. And Congressman Lewis, before he died, said he could see democracy on the its last legs, possibly. And he said, you can't just love democracy. You have to go out and do something. Whatever it is, get some voters out, get speak, whatever you like to do, you know, and that's the point of pluck. So then if you look at the cover of the book with this wonderful designer colleague, you see it's it's a five letter word, pluck in caps. And the P we put in parenthesis in orange and the, the rest of the word is in yellow. And the point being that as much as as important as it is for us to have pluck, and I'll give you some examples of some we had, and then you certainly had pluck in your life. And anybody who's been a PA and been a, in medical care certainly had great moments of pluck but anyway the last four letters are luck luck you know and then that's why you see so many times in the book as we talk through these issues that we'll be addressing in a moment that we would yeah we'd have the pluck to do x but then all of a sudden christian bernard would do the first heart transplant and we'd just been working on pituitary glands which you know people who care about pituitaries, but it was hardly a worldwide episode. Well, five months after we got to NIH, that happened. That meant the work we were already doing to look at the laws relating to dead bodies and, and organ donation and what, what they should look like were of great interest to the person listening to Walter Cronkite that, that night to see yeah. how long did his patient last. It lasted 18 days, which turned out to be fairly long at that at that time. So that's why pluck, I think, is such 
a perfect title because if you've, I'm sure, found this. Now, that's not to say we don't have bad luck, but if we take the initiative and jump into something like you did when you were talking about your career uh, on the first podcast that you did, you were giving yourself some background that was helpful to me and uh, knew a friend who was in the military as a PA. And so you took action and uh, you asked for help. So that's what pluck is. And it's something that I think anybody who has accomplished anything in life has had. Now we can we can do things that will help us to have more of it. We can, because most of us are afraid. We're afraid of something. The biggest fear is public speaking, you know, but how do you you get over that? You do what I did. You go to Toastmasters and you become a good public speaker. You know, it's just pure pure practice. And that's, if you're not very good at suturing as a PA, well, you practice suturing and you can become pretty good if you, if you decide. So that's what pluck is all about. Fred, you obviously, in the book you talk about, you give great examples of how your hard work produced great luck. And and some of the timing is really interesting with the work that you just described and some of the other things we'll be talking about and how somebody came into your life that just fit that piece of the puzzle perfectly. Uh, Let's go back to when you and your brother first decided to write this and tell us about that process as twin brothers who had lived such extraordinary lives together and then apart professionally. You had a large period of time early in your careers, both in law and medicine, where you worked together purposefully. And then, of course, you you both went on to other great careers. What brought you back together to write this story at this point four years ago? Well, I felt that, and I kind of was the, the person who nudged it along a little more, um, I just felt that there were a lot of lessons here, and we'll come to the 15 lessons that we have chapter 10 about that uh, we learned that we think we stole from other people, like take the road less traveled or ask for help, find a mentor, and we'll we'll get into that in detail. But we felt that there were that we had made so much change. We'd been part of a process that had made in four separate areas, really, namely organ transplantation and that law, medical ethics, which was just coming onto the scene with a hideous 1972 expose on the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment, and then moving on to the workforce crisis after Medicare and Medicaid were passed and the physician assistant as a solution. How would they get licensed? There's where a lawyer was so helpful to have involved. And then finally into emergency medicine, uh, which as you said, when we were talking earlier, it was a, in 1970, a lot of people have had the sort of the same reaction you did uh, on reading the book. It was that recent that it was a wasteland that you got picked up by a hearse or a by a station wagon with nobody in the back uh, with a driver with no training and there was no 911 so you probably died before anybody picked up your dead body it, it just was amazing and so we had a chance to tackle that and then I'll I'll point out the other one of the messages that takeaway messages from what we decided to do that responds to your question I think directly why write the book is not only to document these things that wasn't that long ago. We're not talking about 1776 or 1666. You know, we're talking just 50, 55 years ago. And they then bring all these four areas up to date and they're all big as big or bigger than they were before. PAs, you know, 300 programs now. Uh, And medical ethics, every school in the country has a medical ethics program. It's a standard now. 
things like should we give the vaccine, should we require, should we require masks, should we close the schools? These are all ethical questions which every citizen has to answer. Whereas before, it was 55 years ago, it was this little niche area, people doing research on human beings, you know, that kind of thing. Emergency medicine, we now have these magnificent rolling hospitals manned by paramedics with uh, communication through to the uh, ER on the way, the ability to defibrillate right in the uh, vehicle, which this friend that I wrote up, you know, my doctor friend, because uh, we told some stories in the books about individuals. In this case, he was working out and collapsed and with the AED that didn't exist. Thank goodness there was an AED where he was working. He was shocked about five or six times before he got to the hospital. And so he would have been dead if he'd been the same episode that happened in 2013. It happened in 1970. Sorry, you know, poor Dr. Goldman, he just died. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. Went into sudden VF and died. Um, so then what lessons can we learn are based on the experience of how we got into all this. But so in addition to just talking about how we decided to write it, we just thought, I think I've answered your question. All these areas are so important for the U.S. citizen to know the historical yeah. development the and frankly appreciate when we can complain about this isn't working in society and that's not working, boy, there have been a lot of things that have improved in our lifetime dramatically in healthcare and medicine, uh, the technology of surgery, but systems have improved dramatically, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Nurse practitioners being a large part of that uh, from a manpower point of view. So um, absolutely, let's celebrate that. Let's, you know. Hold a glass of champagne up for that one, right? Yeah. Uh, there's still more to go. And going back to our beginning, I think, is something else we talked about uh, before we started recording, which was say a little bit about how this got started way back. And so I'll say that we're both in medical school and law school in Philadelphia. We were just across town from each other. We were great buddies. We'd gone to the same college and we'd learned to play squash there. And, and so we kept playing squash and tennis and uh, taught tennis in the summers. And so we had a lot of, we were just great buddies. We we're the only two in our family. We didn't have any other brothers and sisters. So we were great buddies as um, uh, law students and medical student and uh, we, I got to know some of his folks, and he got to know some of mine. I got to know some of his favorite professors. He got to know some of mine. And as a result, when we were thinking about what to do, it was the height of the Vietnam War. They were they, people. I might just digress briefly and say, people say, well, yeah, you could make all those changes then because the world wasn't so divided as it is now. Good point, up to a point. But let me just recite a few things while we were there between sixty-seven and seventy-six. How about Martin Luther King's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the burning of the Democratic Convention in sixty-eight, and of a lot of L.A. where you were, Washington D.C. was in flames. You know, there was so much turmoil. It was the summer of love on the one hand. There was so much anti-Vietnam War, which we really got into big time in about 67. Um, yeah. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And then there's the 
Richard Nixon presidency. I can't tell you how depressing that was to come home every night between 72 and 74 and hear the latest garbage out of uh, that whole thing. And that as as hard as it's been to watch the conviction or attempted conviction of some of these perpetrators, uh, and it has gone on longer and it was worse now. But Nixon was just as bad in his own ways. And what I think kept Blair and me sane was just working real hard. We, we follow the news a little bit, but then we just jump right back into what we were working on. Chapter 10, you talk about the 15 lessons for catalyzing change, but you allude to these lessons throughout the other chapters. And, and two things that come to mind right now, one is the catalyst. You two decided to be catalysts in problem solving some of the more difficult challenges that the country was facing. And change agents, you two were the avenue for change with so many of the people that you collaborated with at NIH and at Yale and at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Hastings Center. So you made a choice that was a little different than most medical graduates when you got out of medical school in terms of where you were going to make your impact initially. And then you came back around to go to medical residency later. So can you talk a little bit about your process of that road less travel that you talk about in chapter one? Yeah, of course, Kevin. Uh, So I was starting a surgical internship at the University of Pennsylvania, and Blair was clerking for a judge. And that uh, there was a doctor draft at the time, and my number came up the Army, and it came up. You get to finish your residency, so I would be I would go in as a surgeon rather than as a general medical officer. Blair was more once he finished that year. He would have to go into the Judge Advocates General Corps for four years or risk getting drafted by this woman back up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is about 50 miles north of Philadelphia, who seemed to love to send young men off to combat. (laughs) Um, But anyway, I was asking around, and the U.S. Public Health Service, which I adore, is the sixth uniformed service. It's not the sixth military service, but it has the NIH and the CDC that we've all been hearing about. And most of us in medicine, of course, know all about anyway, and the Indian Health Service. And they even had some public health service hospitals back then, the Staten Island, one in 1798, for example. And then they've taken over a lot of the prison care in some of the federal prisons. And some of our most notable PAs are doing that kind of work. It's fantastic. So anyway, I was not a bench research guy. My dad was a PhD in chemistry, but I just didn't, I, I was more of a people person. And I tell the story about how at age five, this marvelous pediatrician came to our house when Blair and I had twin earaches, middle ear infections, and they really hurt. He came at nine o'clock on a Friday night with his, this is 1945, with this big black uh, bag and a a glass tube of some antibiotic, which had to be tetracycline because I think penicillin wasn't even out yet. That's right. Just coming out. And so uh, I remember it was right out of a Norman Rockwell scene. I'm standing at the top of the stairs with a single light bulb over the head of this third year attic, third floor attic that that we lived in, uh, Blair and I. And he'd seen each of us one by one. And he had this soothing voice. And he had this talking to, that he talked to each of us. And he had this soothing voice. Now, Mrs. Sadler, if you have any further problem later tonight? And he had us both take Tylenol too, which of course I think really helped a lot. And it, may, it might've been APC back then. <laughs> anyway, and 
you know, then they walked on down the stairs. Uh, and I remember in college thinking, now, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? I was sort of an English major type, but I was really interested. Mm-hmm. In, and this, that memory came back to me of how good he made me feel. And I thought, you know, if there's a way I could be that helpful to somebody else when they were sick, that would be a very cool career to be in. So I think I'll choose medicine. That's, it was, it was that basically was all emotional. So get, getting yeah. to your question. I, I have to answer another one first, and that is 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 our own pluck. There was we had given started giving some talks on medical legal issues, the Good Samaritan problem, and how it's viewed differently from the medical point of view or the citizen. We must stop the biblical point of view, even if it's someone from the other side, the Samaritan, you know. In that case, and the law, the lawyer might say, though, well, you better be careful because if the person doesn't make it or has a bad outcome, the family might see you. And so we talked about that in a number of places, and that turned out to be a lot of fun and very interesting. So then I, I'm there a couple months in my internship, and I was having second thoughts about surgery, frankly. You know, you're the surgeon intern, we had to kind of clean up everything and somehow doing changing the dressing on someone who'd had a radical mastectomy. And I thought, the disfigurement that we'd done to this person, allegedly to help them. I don't know if I can do this or not. So I was already having a little doubts. But then I heard through the grapevine that, you know, if you could get to the NIH or CDC, you could be in the public health service and that would count and you wouldn't have to go to Vietnam or you wouldn't have to do this other thing. So unfortunately, I wasn't one of these brainiac bench guys. And so I heard, here's where luck trumped pluck. The person who happened to be the new vice president for health affairs at the University of Pennsylvania was the former Surgeon General, Dr. Luther Terry, who is so famous for, in 1964, writing the big expose on smoking as hazardous to your health, which led labels on each pack of cigarettes and finally took on the companies, the cigarette companies. So he'd retired, and he happened to, of all the medical schools he'd pick, he happened to pick Penn. And so we had, were starting to work on a paper of how we might work together. We had no idea where we could work together, how it could be possible. But looking at definition of death, uh, use of human beings in research, consent, you know, all of the, the kinds of things I've alluded to, and uh, and a few more where medicine and law really, really uh, overlapped, and we sent this paper to him. And then I I was the pluckster in this case and called his office and said, we'd like to, my brother who's a Penn Law School graduate and I would like to come visit you. And he said, fine. And he was this warm, you know, receptive mentor who said, so nice to see you. We, a lawyer in the public, we've never had a lawyer in the public health service. We should have years ago because yeah. we have this, this law office downtown called the general council. Anytime we send anything from NIH down for approval, they always say no because of the risk. But if you had a lawyer in the planning process, maybe we could have. So yeah, call all these names, these names, Bill Stewart, Jim Shannon, the, all the people in the public health service at NIH that he knew, of course, real well. And he had their phone numbers and he said, tell them that Luther Terry called you. Wow. Talking about opening up a door. And that was third yeah. green light. And I, you know, we don't have time to go into all the others, but we then interviewed and they all were very interested. And we then got a bunch of offers and we chose to go to the director's office, planning office of the National Institutes of Health and ended up on July 1st of 1967 with commissions in the public health service instead of, of being off in Vietnam or being in my surgical residency or, you know, it just talking about luck, huh? 
that was yeah but well, if I hadn't and, made the call, you know? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Your gumption. You you used the word chutzpah before. You had you had the 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 intestinal fortitude to just say, well, why why not try to set up that appointment with that former surgeon general? So that gumption you showed or the pluck you had ultimately led to this whole career for you. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. None of it would have happened if it if and if Luther Terry had been at some other medical school, you know, we probably wouldn't have had the entree. We definitely wouldn't have had the entree. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So now you're at NIH, you and Blair are both there in the director's office and your very first project that you describe in the book is organ transplantation. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how this ended up becoming a revolutionary part of our societal awareness and what we do? Be glad to. It is uh, an amazing story. We get there, and as we say in the book, we have the privilege of working with a man named Joseph Murtaugh, who was the head of planning office, and he had cropped hair and, you know, uh, papers everywhere, multiple phones going off, and he just looked like a bureaucrat. Brilliant speaker, brilliant writer. He wrote all the testimony for Dr. Shannon to give to the House and the Senate every year when we had our budget. And the House and Senate loved NIH so much, they would always give apparently more than we asked for. And back then, there were only about ten, eight or 10 institutes. Now there are 15. But anyway, he said, Gentlemen, we have a problem. And he threw out two newspaper clippings, which is in the book. Uh, one from L.A., bare human gland sale was the huge touch. And in Minneapolis, coroner's aid robs corpses. And these were deaners who are pathology coroner assistants who help with the dissection. And, of course, the coroner, uh, there are four laws that relate to the dead body, which we then studied in detail. Uh, and each state is uh, potentially different. But the coroner in every state, or the medical examiner, depending on how, how he's labeled, he or she, uh, has the authority, in fact, the responsibility to do an autopsy when there's several conditions, possible homicide, possible suicide, possible strange cause of death, possible pandemic, possible infectious disease that might affect the whole community. And even if the family says, no, 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 we don't believe in it, that he would have to do that. But he did not have authority in any state to take a pituitary gland, for example, which was being done for research because the NIH had set up in 63 something called the National Pituitary Agency based at Hopkins. And the idea was to collect pituitary glands, 72,000 a year they were collecting, if you could believe that number. We're doing 40,000 transplants a year now. So this is 55 years later and we haven't even caught up to the number. So it was a big deal. And the whole point was hypopituitary dwarfism was, of course, related to lack of HGH or the growth factor coming down. And so if you ground it up and, and purified it, which was being done in half a dozen medical centers, then you could administer it by injection to these unfortunate children. One out of every 3,800 births was um, hypopituitary dwarf. And you could decide how much to give how often to give them an extra, say, six inches, eight inches foot in growth. So that's what the whole NPA was all about. But they got into this trouble because they would pay $2 per gland to send them back to from wherever around the country. Well, $2 per gland seems like nothing, but if you look in today's dollars, it's probably $15. And if you were doing a lot of them, like they were in these big cities of Minneapolis and LA, the deaners were making several thousand dollars a year, you know, just doing this uh, illegally. And they didn't find this out until through the newspapers. So we were sent, solve this problem, Sadlers. This is, you know, we, we can't, can't keep this up. This is going to 
ruin the NIH reputation. It's going to ruin the National Pituitary Agency. And so we camped out at the Georgetown Law Library and studied all the state laws relating to autopsies, unclaimed bodies, to they were beginning to have some organ donation laws that were different for corneas with the beginning ones, and finally medical examiners. So we then got a chance to report to him and all the institute directors. And by then, Joe Murtaugh had done a study of what other research they were doing on dead bodies, cadaver tissue, and virtually every institute was doing it. So they, he said, let the Saddlers come talk to you, and soon we have a problem to solve. So we got to meet all the institute directors who was, they were called the College of Cardinals because there were all these big, big names. And uh, then uh, we had the chance to, by one hook or crook, run into someone named Blythe Stason, who was the former dean of the Michigan Law School. And he was head of a committee of something called the Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, now called the Uniform Law Commission. It's easier to say. Founded in 1892 by a lawyer who said, you know, the U.S. Constitution says this particular area, like in this case, human tissue obtaining, is an area of state law. But wouldn't it be nice if every state was the same? And I forget what his issue was, but that it still is going today, 128 years later, the Uniform Law Commission, on every subject you can imagine, you know, interstate sales transactions. Now they're looking at the internet issues and and driverless cars and stuff. Well, they had a committee that was starting to look at this. And we met Blythe Stason, who realized, boy, do these Sadler guys know a lot. And one of them's a doctor, and he knows all the medical stuff. And I don't know any of this medical stuff. And the other one, the lawyer knew all the law. So he wanted us to be his chief consultants. Luck. You know, and then uh, about two months later, Christian Bernard does the first heart transplant. So uh, then that carries us into the summer of 68. Just one year later, July 31st of 68, we have the annual meeting, which moves around every year. The Uniform Law Commission is in Philadelphia that year. And Professor Stason uh, asks us, he was this ancient guy, it's age 70, if you can imagine someone that old, um, to be his chief consultants. And so we help present and basically presented the law to the commissioners. It looked kind of like the United Nations. Each state had three commissioners with a state flag, and they were very eminent lawyers. And so they voted unanimously, yes. Then the very next week, we presented the American Bar Association, which had 3,000 attendees and went through the same routine. They said, yes. Because the point of the UAGA, as we called it, Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, UAGA uh, is the acronym, is that you and I have the right to donate uh, after death. And we can be specific, just our eyes, or we can say generally whatever you need for transplantation or for medical research. The next of kin, if we don't say anything, either way, in a specified order of priority, have authority, surviving spouse, kin, that sort of thing. And then there are several other important provisions, but the other final, most important, I'd say two things. One was that we said that the transplant surgeon and the team that was going to be taking care of the recipient with the kidney or the heart or whatever could not be the same as the donor's uh, surgeon. So that you had to, there's no conflict of interest. There was nobody who was taking care of two patients down the hall from each other and say, well, so-and-so and so-and-so is very near death. Let's just give up on them. And you can imagine the underserved were particularly concerned that they might be given up for a white person's organ, you know? Absolutely. The reason this then passed, you know, and this is what is so breathtaking about it, it passed every state in three years. And we also got a chance to testify before both the House and the Senate 
Senate, uh, their committee on the District of Columbia was considering this act because the U.S. Senate and then the U.S. House is the in charge of the laws of the District of Columbia. So going up to the Capitol to each side and having a chance to present the UAGA, because Doug, Professor Stason wasn't involved with that, any of that, and then some senior transplant surgeons you know, were there. So it was just... Um, a remarkable thing. And then to have it passed. And today, uh, there have been a little, couple of little tweaks with it. But here we are. We, we went to Kentucky to uh, celebrate the 50th anniversary in 2018 of yeah. the Anatomical Gift Act. You know, so two things I'll say. One is um, I remember to this day the very first time I participated in a transplant donation process. And I was on the front end, I saw the family and their challenges of dealing with the news that their loved one was not going to make it. And then their decision to donate, to gift their loved one's remains to future families in the in the transplantation process, the eyes, the heart, the kidneys, the, the lungs were taken. Everything was just such a privilege and an honor for all of us on the team to be part of. And then to be in the OR with the surgeon for that surgery and then to see that just that solemn way that that human was treated by the team ethically with love for their gift to so many others was such a privilege for me as a PA student. The second thing I would say is you use two words in here that are really interesting that you fought for. They were using the word procurement and you fought for the word donation and and how interesting that is from a marketing perspective, what each word connotes and you you won out. And obviously we all have organ donor cards on the back of our licenses that we can check because of that word. That's what an incredible gift to society that you and your brother participated in with this. How, how neat it must have been to be on the court as part of this team. It really was exciting, and we then even had uh, another lucky thing happen because we got to be known as the spokesman for uh, the, we uh, various state legislatures would ask us to testify, and we could only pick a few, but we did testify. And then we got a chance to travel uh, internationally at these international meetings in Madrid, in Geneva, the World Health Organization in Jerusalem and London and Paris, wow. you know, and meet these Nobel Prize winners. And uh, we were talking about the U.S. Exp experience and then someone else was talking because the other approach was to flip it around. Ours is called opting in kind of in the internal language, but I think organ donation or gift it's a gift statute. The Uniform Anatomical Gift Law is is the key. But there, uh, we argued in the New England Journal in 1969 uh, about a law suggestion that a, a lawyer and a and a doctor from UCLA had proposed, saying you'll never get enough people to donate. You know, it's exciting, but then they won't get around to it. So what you should do is what we do when you with drivers. We have. Uh, we drive on any highway and we um, give consent just by driving to get stopped and check to see if we're drunk or not or to see if we're taking drugs or not. Uh, we don't have to give consent for that. We So they were kind of using that analogy. And they had, speaking of words, they had words like organ salvage, you know. <laughs> You'll have better results with organ salvage if you, you know. So they- Oh my goodness. 
They, we would have had to carry a card that said we object, you know. Well, we our point, we argued it, that it's just as much effort to, if you're going to talk to the family to say we, we would like to get consent from Fred's or Kevin's organs versus having to go to the family and say uh, we're taking the organs unless you object. They, now, they ended up doing that in Europe, and, and that's a whole other fascinating story. We just wrote some articles recently in the British Medical Journal about how they're still, they still think that you can get more organs that way, but it's never happened. So I think the whole idea, um, and then when we got to Hastings Center, briefly on that, so we're at NIH, we discover a colleague named Leon Cass, who's an MD-PhD neurologist, brilliant guy who was very interested in ethics and had run into the two founders of the Hastings Center at a meeting in New York. One was Will Galen, a professor of psychiatry, but whose interests were really in ethics. And he wrote his first book was on young men who was called War Resisters in Prison and something to the effect of their gift to to ethics and uh, that they would rather go to prison than go to Vietnam. You know, and mm-hmm. the other founder was Dan Callahan, a PhD philosopher who did not want to spend his career writing esoteric articles to other philosopher professors, but really felt that there was a lot out there in the world about ethics in his, bi- his autobiography that we cite in 2012 before he died at age 90 is remarkable, you know, about I want to reach people. So those were the two, and they happened to live in Hastings-on-Hudson, just north of New York, where we actually lived for a couple of years uh, after we lived in New York City before we went to Allentown. And so we were invited up by Leon Cass, our friend in NIH, and met these wonderful, charming people and a bunch of other academics talking about, let's set up an organization. And it became the Hastings Institute. We were two of the founding fellows talking about luck, you know, the pluck there was to call Leon Cass on the phone because he'd written an article in the Washington Post about organ donation, you know, uh, and how how there were issues. And so the luck was all these fascinating professors that were talking way over our heads. And we then looked, there are a number of things that we did that we just did on common sense Mm -hmm. on what is the right thing to do. And that's, we didn't go to any master's program in public policy to learn, you know, these things. We just, you know, did the next right thing. Often other people, of course, who were wiser. So when we presented the work by this time, this was now 1969-70, so the Uniform Act had already been finished. And then by 71, it was being adopted everywhere, of course. But we, the professors, and we quoted them in the book on the chapter on Hastings, three different professors commented on why the gift idea is better than the taking idea, you know, which was very validating on our part to have these people. Basically, they're saying a society of givers is better than a society of takers. That is so true. Then, so we're still we're there. We're think, beginning to think, hey, this is so much fun. Let's find a way to keep doing this. Maybe one of the senators, like Ted Kennedy, or needs uh, a staffer, or maybe we can find a university place. But we had no idea at that point. So the next opportunity uh, found us, as we mentioned, and that was the Assistant Secretary for Health uh, came to us and said, "We've by then we'd apparently established the reputation of doing good work." And he said, "You know, we have this crisis in health manpower in this country." A really crisis. Medicare and Medicaid were adopted in 65, but implemented in 66, which meant 20 or million or more older people and 20 million or more people below the a certain poverty line had immediate access to care with a government ticket. There were not anywhere near enough doctors 
to do to take care of who's how are we going to solve this crisis so they'd heard of these new experimental programs that were being tried this is 68 um so you can imagine it was duke colorado and seattle and they said we want you to see how these people first of all is this a program just based on charismatic people like genes they all were on charismatic people of course dick smith dick smith uh, henry silver you know but do you think this is a real possibility for solving our manpower crisis nationally because this the the fact that a non-physician would be trained and authorized to take practice medicine albeit as part of the the medical team is that going to work you know Guys, so mm-hmm. can you check this out for us? And oh, by the way, while you're at it, how can we license these creatures that are being presented at a time when there just happened to be a moratorium on the licensure of new personnel? Because enough people had looked at the licensure of the variety of other allied health professionals, which go from 12 to 26, depending on the state. It was they were more to protect the guild of the profession than to protect the person who might be injured by the by an incompetent or uh, problem. So they, they had this moratorium. So when we come along with the idea of a physician assistant that Gene Stead and uh, the guys at Duke are beginning to you know chafe at the bit because they're starting to have graduates coming out in 67. And the first ones could stay at Duke and kind of work at Duke and be under the umbrella. Right. But very, very soon they were going to be you know, people coming out. So we went around and we talked to our Duke colleagues and they were very much of the same band as we were that make a simple amendment to the Medical Practice Act. One paragraph, nothing in the above language, which defines what a doctor can do, operate, diagnose, treat, and prescribe, shall prevent said physician from delegating to a specially trained nurse assistant um, or physician's assistant, those tasks for which he or she has been trained. And as long as both are liable, boom. One paragraph. So we presented that. That was that sold. We had a hundred-page paper that we wrote as background of all our work, and we uh, sold it to the man who became the bureau head of Bureau of Health Manpower, Ken Endicott, who had been head of the National Cancer Institute that we'd gotten to know very well. And he said, "Okay, let's go with this." And then when we moved on to New Haven, which is the next fabulous story, but we were so sold, him, I got to tell you. Just like you were impressed talking to your friend. When we, can you imagine hanging around Gene Stead and his people, hanging around Henry Silver and his people, and they're all dedicated. This The dean at Colorado, Richard Krugman, was dean for 26 years, and he just started being dean when Henry Silver was you know, head of pediatrics, and he was in charge of going out and getting preceptorships all around the state of Colorado. So, you know, just that kind of synergy. And then Dick Smith, who was such a charismatic young African-American who had gone to Howard University, Howard College, gotten an MPH, been in the Peace Corps, and then had caught the eye of people at WHO. And in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson said, I'm assigning you, Dr. Smith, to desegregate all the hospitals. Yeah. So talking about power and talent. And then he decides, I am so impressed what people could do in the in the in the Peace Corps and in the military abroad in other countries. We can do that with our returning corps. And then the final point, six thousand five hundred corpsmen coming back from Vietnam every year. Yeah. What a pool of talent. You know? Yeah, you've got a problem with workforce. You've got a solution with these really well experienced corpsmen. So you allude to Malcolm Gladwell in your book in one area. And if you think about that, that his book, The Tipping Point, and, and you talk about you you have the Bureau of, of Health Manpower, you've got three key institutions and their leadership uh, across the East, 
central, you know, Colorado's not quite central, but and west side of the country. I mean, you really had all the right pieces in play to be able to move this forward. Because I got to imagine the medical community while acknowledging the shortage existed, had to be incredibly anxious about opening up their licensure for this flexibility. Yet you and your brother chose the path of least resistance by adding it in, but using a language that allowed them to delegate and that liability was still shared among the two individuals. So what a brilliant decision. Yeah, it was. It really worked out well. And uh, the other things we had going for us was that in the Vietnam War, in the Korean War, going back to World War II, uh, a lot of the major medical schools sent a whole group over to have uh, a medical center at a particular part of the front, you know, wherever the front may be. And they mm-hmm. had trained military corpsmen back at Fort Sam Houston or one of the major uh, military bases here. So doctors already knew about corpsmen. So that was an education process we didn't have to sell. An awful lot of them said, oh, I'd want one of those tomorrow. And then there were a number of people, like you go back to the Buddy Treadwell story and their uh, Vivian Thomas story at Hopkins. You, There were a number of, uh, of ones that were not as famous, but people saw that there was this very bright person in their office. I'm going to train them to do more. So it was just done informally and uh, people yeah. recognized that. So we had all that going. But the thing that I think sailed it through, so by 1973, again, talking about rapid movement, uh, we finished the report early 70 and then go on to Yale. And we got the law through in Yale in 71, but uh, and the new Connecticut and California were among the first states to have uh, in 71 to have this delegation amendment. But the Federation of State Medical Boards met about it and they they couldn't have any argument with it. You know, it's still the Medical Practice Act, you know? It's very much like the idea of the donation law. You know, it's consent. Nobody's requiring you to do this. If you decide you want to do it, here's the way to do it. So by 73, something like 35 states had passed this. Wow. We thought about uh, briefly taking this through the commissions on uniform state laws. That would have slowed it all up by three years because you've had to go through a committee. And, you know, it would have been 73 or four before it even came out. And by then we'd had hundreds of graduates. We're going to get a chance to talk more about your contributions to the PA profession in season four. But I think for the purposes of the transition from NIH to and, and Hastings to Yale and EMS, you you had that pluck again because you were already working on this health workforce issue and you had familiarized yourself with the PA profession. And now Yale is interested in participating in bringing you two on board to be able to focus on this other issue that they wanted to create. So let's talk about that. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it was another example of pluck with a, a P, a capital P to start out and then a lot of luck. So my favorite professor in Philadelphia and surgery was Jack Cole, Jack W. Cole, C-O-L-E. And he, and I'd heard, and that's really why I wanted to be a surgeon, because I wanted to be, he was this great gentleman from the Cleveland Western Reserve tradition of great surgeons. And so he he would always, and he met Blair, and he'd always call us laddies. Now, what are you laddies up to? And it's just a charming guy. So he, I had heard rumors that he's the new chairman of surgery at Yale. And uh, I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? So I was in charge of one of the Institute's programs on neurology and kidney disease. And I had took a site visit team up to the Department of Physiology to renew their big grant. And so while I was there, a little pluck crept into my uh, spine. And I thought, I'll try and see if Dr. Cole even remembers me and if he's busy. So 
uh, called and he said, oh, I'd love to see you, uh, according to the secretary. And I'm in there waiting for him for a few minutes. Our New England Journal article from 69 is on his desk. And I said to myself, that is an auspicious sign, as the Japanese would say, you know. So he comes in is just charming self. And he said, let me just tell you what I've been up to. I've been following you laddies and all the good work you've been doing. And I told him why I was there. And he said, well, let me just tell you, uh, as chairman of surgery, there are four things I want to do. I won't bore you with the other three, but one is emergency medicine is a nightmare outside the hospital. If somebody makes it to our OR, we usually do a pretty good job. But, you know, uh, he was aware of the 1966 report that accidents are hazardous to your health was the name of that National Research Council with the American College of Surgeons. So he was all over this as a problem. Um, and he apparently had interviewed about 30 or 40 senior docs, uh, surgeons who had been professors who were now kind of slowing down, who might want to pick this up. And he sort of thought, yeah, I guess, you know, and he got, oh, by the way, he got this $2 million grant from the Commonwealth Fund, the biggest grant they'd ever given to do this. That'd be 15 million, 20 million in today's dollars to study trauma and emergency medicine outside the hospital. Okay. So he said, I've been thinking that maybe you and your, and Blair would like to come up and run this program. Well, you know, I said, well, let me think about that a little bit. And then I also, and I don't think it was the first meeting. I think it was the second meeting, but I remember trying to control my emotions, you know, because again, we were rookies. We didn't know anything about emergency medicine, you know? So sure. but we've done that with everything else you go. And that's where what Malcolm Gladwell says, you learn, you become a maven. Well, how do you do that? You study your butt off, you know, and then you have something to say available to people. And you both had developed a process for this, right? You yes. you had had success uh, tackling a brand new problem and, and helping to solve that. Exactly. Exactly. And so Dr. Cole came down to NIH within a couple months. To, he was on a study section and he met Blair and went over all this. I, uh, and we said, you know, there's only one request we have. It's we're so impressed with this physician assistant idea that we'd like to start our own program at Yale under the aegis of the trauma. He said, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. So that's how we started about the, it was about the fifth one in the country. And I was director of both of them. I was an assistant professor of surgery and public health uh, with one year of surgical training and no public health training. And Blair was an assistant professor of law and away we went, you know? Oh my gosh. And there was this wonderful colleague of ours, Sam Webb, that we mentioned in the book, was a professor of public health. He was very interested in emergency medicine. He had 10 graduate students getting their MPH. And he said, I'm going to put them all on studying some aspect of EMS outside the hospital. So somebody looked at ambulances. Somebody looked at the training. Somebody looked at who staffed the ERs, uh, the doctors, the nurses. Someone looked at communication. Someone looked at how things were paid for. And we really, it really was what we called in our book on the subject, the neglected public service. There was money for fire. There was money for police. EMS was this whole mixed bag. There were some private ambulance services. There were some that were funeral directors that if you didn't make it to the hospital, well, then they took you to the other place. You know, they could get you one way or the other. So we set up a statewide advisory committee, which we chaired. And there's where being much like when we're at NIH, we got a lot of people to call us back that otherwise wouldn't. When you're at Yale uh, in Connecticut and you set up an advisory committee, people show up, you know? So we shared that and within, we did this study that the MPH students did that I helped supervise and 
uh, Blair did. And they all wrote a thesis. We had a 750-page report because Connecticut was like a perfect social laboratory. It was just small enough you could get everywhere in a couple hours. And there were 30 hospitals, 179 ambulance companies. You could get this data. And then we realized that, okay, we got to submit this to the governor. There's no way he's going to read this long a report. So let's just do a 52-page summary document, which laid out you got to train EMTs. You got to train da 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 da. And on the EMT front, just again, another example of luck. We're sitting around thinking about how are we going to get these people trained? We're going to have to organize. They'll do all this. Well, across our desk one day in 1972 came this orange covered eight by 11 soft cover book by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And they'd had a committee on accidents for, I don't know, five years. And they'd put this book together, 81-hour course to train EMTs. So there we were. We trained 6,000 EMTs by 1976. You know, we didn't have to start our own EMT course. There there was just fell out of the sky. And then the other golden opportunity, and then I'll finish up the Yale period because we will get to this, was the chance to write the book on PAs in 72. And that was Jack Cole coming back from Five Foundations saying they want a white paper on PAs. And we brought in Ann Bliss to help us do that. And then that led to the book. And I mean, thank goodness you had Duke, University of Washington, Colorado, Yale, kind of backing the PA profession early on, or I don't know if it would have taken off. You had legitimate institutions that were stepping up saying this is a good idea for the health manpower shortage at that time. So that's really well, interesting. thing that happened that, that we'll get into in the next interview is that in 72, we set up APAP, you know, uh, which I, they elected me first president of. And then we realized we had to have a certification exam. And the National Board of Medical Examiners stepped up, speaking of legitimate organizations yeah. that never tested non-physicians before and they were the ones that tested PAs so wow wow that is that's incredible I was just looking this fact up there according to the CDC 2021 survey there are 214,000 paramedics and EMTs practicing or working here in the United States today so that's a that's a big contribution to the impacts of the, all those medics that are now uh, helping people make it to the ER for their care so it's really, that has to bring a lot of satisfaction for the two of you. Well, it really does. And one of the things that following up on the EMS, if we got this opportunity, then and once again, it was uh, a little bit of pluck. I'm sitting down on a Sunday reading the New York Times front page, second section, big article in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, overnight becomes largest foundation in health, 1.4 billion. And one of the two J&J brothers uh, took four years to probate his will. And he'd had this little foundation in New Brunswick, New Jersey, all, all all of a sudden, all that money, you know, and David Rogers, this wonderful internist dean from Hopkins, is recruited to be the first president. And it shows a picture of him and the chairman of the board, Gustav Leinhardt, sitting on a bench at the Princeton campus, uh, their auxiliary campus, where there was a linear accelerator building that was empty and we were going to use as our building. So I said to Blair, reading through this, they wanted to increase access to care. They wanted to focus on the United States. You ought to read this. This might be something interesting because by that time, we'd gotten to know a lot of people in philanthropy at the Carnegie Corporation, Commonwealth Fund, Rockefeller, you know. And so one thing led to another. We met with Dave Rogers. He said, when can you start? You know, so. Uh, <laughs> You've heard that before. Yeah. So uh, then the first major national program that they did once we started in 73 was to take, because they had a problem by the IRS requires that a foundation has to give a certain percentage of its corpus every year. 
And these individual grants were fine, but took a lot of staff work. And you know, so we said, uh, let's have a national program at $15 million, which would again be like $150 million today. And the first one was on emergency medical services. <laughs> and it was based on the Connecticut model of regionalization. That's fantastic. 44 places around the country. And Blair ran that. And then meanwhile, I got this wonderful opportunity to run the clinical scholars program where, uh, you know, physicians who wanted to spend another two years learning something about health policy or epidemiology or business could learn more. And so there were 12 medical schools around the country that I got a chance to see these marvelous young doctors and professors. And then I'm going to get back to a question you asked a long time ago in this interview, which is, so how did you happen to get back into your practice? Well, I, as much fun as all this was, and it was to be, you know, in the middle of all these exciting adventures and to be doing things and that were making a difference, I still had this gnawing feeling that like, yeah, I could be head of a foundation maybe someday or professor of public health or something like that, a uh, health commissioner, but I really wanted to be a, a people doctor. Mm-hmm. And so one of my other jobs was to get some of the internal medicine residencies and pediatric residencies to take, say, four out of 20 of their slots and focus on primary care. That was part of this whole idea of helping take care of the more enfranchised people, right? So I had a chance to visit a number of these. And then the, the Mass General one was really terrific. And that's such a terrific hospital. So I decided I'm going to bite the bullet. It's been nine years since I've seen a patient. And instead of being the youngest guy in the room, I was now the oldest. I was 35 when I did a second internship and wow. in internal medicine. And there are not too many people who you know put themselves through two internships, but uh, I certainly couldn't. I, I, I'd forgotten too much medicine. Plus, yeah. there was too much, too much new stuff that I didn't know. Um, and so that's how I, I did it. And then Blair went up. Blair got a chance through a phone call to go out to California, which is uh, another story in itself. Yeah. I mean, I think I was really impressed not knowing your brother as well as I know you. I certainly, having lived in LA for 11 years, knew the reputation of Rady Children's Hospital. And I had no idea that your brother had been the CEO of that hospital for over 20 years and took it from what it used to be to Rady. And it's a it's an incredibly impressive institution uh, just on its reputation in California, not knowing the connection of the Sadler brothers. So, and then you yourself practiced primary care for several decades uh, in the Carmel area. So how amazing uh, for the two of you in your, your next journey that you took following all this great catalyst and change work that you did early on. Well, thank you for saying that. It's been a, a, quite an adventure. We will hope that some of our PA educator friends will read this book and find it as interesting as you did, uh, because we think it's a good read, which I think you agree it is. And we did only did about 25 drafts to get it there, you know, and two different editors helping us and stuff. So we really found that when we wrote articles together 40 years ago, that good writing is good rewriting. Um, so, but we think that it is the kind of thing, it's, it's an inspirational book. I think you would agree that he yes. took these chances. They had this luck, you know, luck led to luck, which led to this, to led to that. And that's can happen to any of us, um, whether we're PA educators, which, or PAs, we, and they're one of the 
people that's written up in the book is Charles Bearden, who's from Emory, who's in Emory's first class, has done this fabulous job as a transplant coordinator all these years. And, you know, he didn't have any idea when he was going to PA school that he was going to end up doing that. He has amazing stories about the baby Eve out in Loma Linda, you know, uh, the first human heart transplant where he took the heart from Atlanta in a special plane in a whole in an ICU unit to Loma Linda so the heart could be translated by Dr. Leonard Bailey. And yeah, there's a picture of him in this recent uh, that just came out two weeks ago issue of the Emory magazine talking about their 50th anniversary of their PA program mm-hmm. and picture of him with the baby Eve, who's now 30 and has three kids of her own. And amazing. Yeah, it's, it's really very, very exciting stuff. I mean, to put it into context for today's up and coming pre-PA audience, there is nothing more incredible to watch for me than to see the, the loved ones of somebody who has passed and gave the gift of their heart to somebody. And you see that family get to listen to their son or daughter or partner or spouse's heart for the very first time in another human being. And you get to like live life vicariously through that human being that was the recipient of this incredible gift. And of all the things I read about, I think, you know, they're all super interesting and there's great leadership lessons. I will talk about the 15 lessons briefly before we close. But to me, Fred, that that's the one that gets me in my my heart. It's just it is so hard not to cry every time you see it because it's such a huge impact in somebody's life. Well, you know, I have exactly the same reaction. I'm tearing up a little bit as you're talking. There were one quick story. It's in the book that that we feature three examples, uh, all of which are worth reciting. But the Nicholas, the, the story of Nicholas. Yeah. So here's yeah. seven-year-old Nicholas in Italy. This will definitely bring me up. Um, and he is he and his sister are, are traveling with their parents on this vacation, and they're going back to their hotel. It's eleven o'clock at night, and some robbers mistake their car for uh, someone who had, had jewelry in it, and they fire gunshots through the back window. They kill Nicholas. I think he lives for about twenty-four hours or something like that. You know, but one of the bullets is in his head and they donate the organs and there's seven organs donated, including Fornia's heart. And this made such an impact across all of Italy. Yeah. The donation rate in Italy tripled overnight and it was called the Nicholas effect. Wow. Their schools call it named after Nicholas. Yeah. People name their kids Nicholas. It, it's a great story. I remember reading it. And and I think when I think about my uh, advocacy lessons, to have a story like that when you're trying to move legislation through the country, to get it through in three years is just astounding, given how many other really critical issues have the issues around smoking took 17 years yeah. in Congress to finally get laws around tobacco regulation that were actually mattering. So that that just goes to show you how incredibly impressive the work you all did. Well, and the thing that that second, just what you're saying, Kevin, is that since that time, uh, no laws come close to most most uniform acts, and that's what these two professors were saying in their article, and we delightfully proved them wrong. <laughs> uh, was that oh, most uniform acts only pass a few states, and you know it's a lot of work, but you know da 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 da. Well, uh, so here we are, and. Um, we're just privileged to have been been part of that. Uh, it was just yeah, 
is really something. Uh, I, I'm always we're always talking about different leadership things on the podcast, and I just think it'd be appropriate to end with this, which is I'd like as we go through your 15 lessons for catalyzing change. If I I'm going to read one of them to you, and if you can just give a your gut reaction to each one and share just a, a brief little nugget on each one. I don't want to give away the whole book. I want people to go out and get this and read it because it really is a great read. First one is begin where you are. Well, this is an Arthur Ashe quote, and Arthur Ashe was criticized, the great tennis player, by some when he uh, insisted on playing in the tennis tournament in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, or Johannesburg, one of the the big cities, and saying, what difference will that make? It's just, okay, so let's say they let you play. He said, I'm a tennis player. I, you know, I'm not a politician, but if they let me in, there's a start, and that's that's where I am. Yeah, very good. Uh, Grow from beginner to expert. So to do any of these things, if we have an idea, it sort of gets back to John Lewis's comment. Okay, let's learn about it. Uh, If you want to become a broadcaster like your dad, you know, let's spend the summer. So and the way you do that in science that we're used to, you go to the library and you read and you talk to, you know, um, people a couple of years ahead of you and see what it's like. And yeah, and then develop your own perspectives as you accumulate more knowledge. Yep. All right. Number three, find and develop your voice. This we think is incredibly important, both in writing and in speaking. And in speaking, um, we have uh, still have, after all these decades, a huge deficit in the public health, the public school system, which is we don't teach public speaking. And the Toastmasters clubs that started in the 30s that are all about learning how to be a better public speaker. I've been involved in our local one for 16 years and did all the usual things, climbed up the ladder, got my Eagle Scout and everything. And so what two of my buddies and I, when with our freshman class in the new program that we started locally, we teach them communication skills and speaking. They have to get up and give a presentation to each other. And then we later in the second year, they have to do a scientific presentation. So you had sort of alluded to this earlier. If you're a PA, you know, get out there and show it. Well, if you don't feel comfortable speaking, you're going to tend to say, well, I don't think I could do that. So it's a learned skill. There's nothing special about it. It's just practice. Okay. Find partners. So obviously that was the the cornerstone of Blair and my relationship. And if you can, by partner, we mean more than just colleagues, someone who really is with you as a fellow human being. And you've certainly had that kind of colleague and friend, whether they're a, a generation older and more in the mentor role or in the same, and hopefully our, the people we marry, it will be true partners, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So that's what we mean. Foster collaboration. And so this this picks up on that, which is very few things are done by one person. And I mean, I think of Abraham Lincoln and his presidency. It's so, so important now and this threat to our democracy and the way he was able to weave around and get people to, to do things. Very much so. Lead from any chair. I think that's one of the best. And you think of an orchestra leader, the director, and maybe the first violinist, and maybe in a particular piece, it'll be the trombone player. But you can be well, you can be the clarinetist or something else, and it's your your time to 
perform. So that that's the person who wrote the the book, uh, the Xander husband and wife team. It's about possibility. He used that analogy because he is also an orchestra conductor. And I think the point is you don't have to be, and that was the advice we were given by one of the professors and, and that we read about in the book that, yeah, it, we're, we were 25. Yeah, go ahead and do it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't have to be well known. Nobody knew Alfred Sadler or Blair Sadler from Adam, you know? That's fantastic. I mean, you you just did the work and became the experts and the then carried the message. Yeah. Number seven is sometimes persistence is the only option. Yeah, I, I think that Shirley Chisholm quote that we you have in the book where, you know, if they don't give you a chair at the table, bring your own folding chair and just keep showing up. And that happened in the the wonderful 50s and 60s movement to get voting rights and more African-American rights, uh, you know, even if it meant getting assassinated. Yeah. Number eight, invite all stakeholders. And that's so important. Uh, when we did the Uniform Act, and one thing we didn't get a chance to talk to, but you alluded to was the, the donor card. We got every group, the Kidney Foundation, the I-Banks, the funeral, anybody who cared about having a card, they had to, it had to be the same card. We wouldn't let them leave the, because we had the NIH as our background, we were able to hold the meeting and host the meeting and we got them all to agree. So you can have a donor card that says NKF for Kidney Foundation or so-and-so I-Bank, but it's the uniform donor card and therefore it's a legal document in all, all states. Now, when you have the d- divisions in uh, our society that you have now, you know, sometimes you just have to just say, no, no way, Jose. And there's where clearly things are more difficult now. But you, you make an effort, you know, you try. Well, and I think just to take a pause as you talk about that, you already alluded to a period of history when you first started with this, that there was a lot of division in our country at that time as well. And yeah. we came through that dark cloud to have a fine couple, three decades, uh, four decades before this current situation. So our hope is we'll see the, you know, we can continue to persist and demand respect for each other and get out of this dark cloud again. Number nine is seek out mentors. Absolutely. So wherever we are, whether it's high school, uh, speaking to the PA gang, there'll be someone that you find attractive to talk to, like I did with Dr. Cole, and you and you did with, you mentioned in uh, some of your favorite people, just ask, tug them on the sleeve and say, hey, do you have a half an hour to talk? And it sometimes seems like it takes up a lot. Well, that's, they're the famous professor. They don't want to just talk to me. Yeah, actually, they do. And having become a mentor at, as an older person, it's a real honor to be asked. It's, yeah. uh, it's very special. So don't I be bashful. Don't be bashful. Well, and there's no better way to honor the legacy of our mentors than to mentor people and model what they taught us. Right on. Right on. All right. Uh, number 10 is keep your eyes open. An opportunity will often appear. Pluck just shows up. Yeah, that's that's the remarkable thing. I mean, an example is the, the opportunity of going to New Haven, Connecticut, you know, that I've already talked about. Yeah. And well, I'll just drop in and see what Dr. Cole's doing. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing you know. <laughs> You've got another chapter of your life for that institution. Yeah. Which leads to the next thing. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, number 11 is when your path is blocked, change course. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Stead is a classic example of that uh, with his wonderful 
program with uh, Thelma Ingalls at Duke and a nurse, fabulous nursing program. And then the National League for Nursing did, didn't accredit it because it's too much medical input. It's not a nursing program. So he was slightly irritated. And I got to know him very well because we used him as a consultant at the foundation. And he didn't like women. He didn't like women organizations. He didn't like nurses. <laughs> you know, throw them all out, you know, uh, but military corpsmen. So he, you know, took a 180 degree turn. When solving a complex problem, the simplest solution is often the best. Well, and that's Occam's razor. We uh, use that, and uh, that goes back to the 1300s, where a Lord Occam said something along that effect. And what we found in the law with our Duke colleagues that just do a simple amendment to the Medical Practice Act, and that's all you got to do. And that lasted for at least 10 years, and then people began to want to have their own laws and their own, you know, but... That gave us time to get data to show that we were safe. Without that, without that, it would not have happened. Uh, number thirteen: Act with transparency and build trust. Well, there I think is is uh, true. To the Boy Scout always tell the truth. I mean, it's it's in every religion, it's in every ethical framework. Uh, it's and it, if if we get caught, uh, even if we've done good work, but if we get caught telling a lie at some point, it can bring down our whole career. It can ruin our marriage. It can ruin our life. It can, you know, so tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. See, it's the easiest approach. 14, take the road less traveled. Well, and this is, you know, when uh, when appropriate. If I were writing it again, I think I'd say that. The, 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 what we wanted and what Robert Frost was saying when he wrote from his famous poem, why maybe you were kind of programmed to be a lawyer or a doctor or this or that because your father was, uh, your mother was, usually it's the father was, but, and, you know, think out, it's think outside the box would be another way of saying it. I think it's much more poetic, the Robert Frost way, but at least consider other roads and maybe you want to be just like your dad or mom, you know, that's fine too. So we're not saying there's anything wrong with that but at least consider. And then in our case, as we say in the book, there wasn't even a road less traveled. It had never been traveled before. Take a road never traveled before. Which leads into your last one, which is dwell on the possibility. So you took that literally by dwelling in the possibility of a completely different path. Exactly. That's uh, out of Emily Dickinson's great poem. And uh, that we can easily get down in our world. I still do. You know, I have to and I love being around positive people like Kevin O'Henry. And we have this synergy and this energy that flows and this possibility. Hey, let's do a podcast or whatever the project may be, you know, and congratulations, sure. by the way, for three years of fabulous podcasts. I can't Thank wait you. to listen to them all, but that's, that's a huge contribution. And and congratulations on the University of Arizona. And, you know, you, Thank you. you couldn't stay away. You couldn't say no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's just another possibility. And I, I never in my life did I plan on starting a program. It wasn't part of my thing, but it's been really interesting. So I got to say, it, it making yourself uncomfortable, which is also part of this road less travel, is uh, every time I've said yes and left a role that I I loved, and, and I've pretty much loved every, every space of my career, it's always hard to leave. But my greatest growth has always come from those opportunities. And it clearly from the book Pluck, lessons we learned for improving healthcare in the world. Both you and Blair had the exact same outcome. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for spending time talking to us about the book and helping us understand the premise of it. And also just the incredible contributions the two of you have made to our world. 
Uh, you know, I was always honored to know you, Fred, but after reading this, I, I feel uh, a little starstruck. So thank you. Uh, you're very sweet. Uh, we just feel very privileged. And uh, to be able to be talking to you about these things is, uh, you know, being at PAEA, 50th anniversary, 300 accredited programs. And I could think back to that table we were sitting around at Duke in 1972 saying, we need to form an organization. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we have some common issues like, how do you select students? How do you write a curriculum? How do you test them? You know, uh, wow. And we'll yeah, talk how far we've come in the next interview. Um, yeah, yeah, I look forward to it. We're going to have Fred back on in season four to talk about the history of the profession and also this wonderful new program that he has helped co-found and, and move in uh, into the California State University system, which if you aren't from California, you need to know that in and of itself is really quite a story. So we look forward to that, Fred, and uh, best of luck with the book. And please, uh, a couple things, right? If you haven't read it, go buy it. And uh, also do think about using this in your PA curriculum because there's such great lessons for uh, our profession and what a great way to honor one of our founding fathers. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Fred Sadler, for sharing his perspectives on the truly great stories that he and his brother Blair shared in their book, Pluck. It is just incredible the contributions the two of them have made to our society and to our well-being as a country and actually worldwide. And what a privilege to be able to interview him. This was a special edition that we released for Thanksgiving, and we just want to wish you and your family a very happy Thanksgiving. We hope you enjoy the opportunity to spend quality time with family, friends, and take a breath from the chaos around us. We will be back on Monday with Dr. Jed Grant from the University of Pacific as we enter the fourth quarter of our third season of the podcast. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.